welcome to the Feel Strong Fitness Podcast. My name is Justin McClintock, and today on the podcast, we have Eric Dagati. I first saw Eric's name in The 4-Hour Body by Tim Ferriss, if any of you have read that. Eric has a remarkable resume. He travels around the world teaching and speaking to trainers as a lead instructor for the FMS system, Functional Movement Systems. He's also been a guest speaker for Mount Sinai, New York University Medical, the Navy SEALs, U.S. Army, a wide variety of places that you have definitely heard of. His list of training clients includes people who have been Olympic gold medalists, All-Americans, national champions, World Series champions, Pro Bowl athletes. Eric works at a very high level, and he took some time to talk to us today. Consistency paired with commitment. How do you build the perfect fitness program and then implement it the right way? What are elements of good program design? This was a great chat. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Here's Eric Degatti on the Feel Strong Podcast. Eric Degatti, welcome to the Feel Strong Podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. Looking forward to it. I'm excited to have you here. We are going to, or I'd like to, if you're into it, dig into programming today and how you look at building a program for an individual. Absolutely. So, you know, you kind of have the big questions of the who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? So you always got to start with with who, right? Who, who are we actually working with? And that's going to be probably the most Im- important factor of all of it that unfortunately we forget, right? We're all arguing about on Twitter of what's our best method of how to do this when meanwhile, there's about a thousand methods that could all work, but it's all irrelevant if you don't know who you're doing it for, right? So that's kind of the big first question is, is who? And then we can even break that down even further. First of all, I already love that you're non-canonical about training because that's something we talk about all the time is there's probably 25 ways to the finish line and they're probably all right. And people who get really wrapped into only there, it has to be whatever, powerlifting or CrossFit or speed training or power training, like really miss a lot of people that they could help. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's one of my favorite parts of the new course that, that I'm doing along with my partner, Mike Perry. We have a course on program design called Principles of Program Design. And in our live course, one of the first things we do is we do something called what's your thing, right? And so we kind of go around the room, right? And we say, all right, yeah, I'm going to call on you, Justin. What's your thing? Like someone's going to give the elevator speech. Here's my my trainer, my coach, Justin. He's blank. Like somebody might introduce me and say, hey, this is Eric. He's an FMS guy or he's a, he works with athletes or he used to work with the Giants or whatever tagline. So what's your thing, right? So do you that. have a thing that you'd be tagged? Oh, you know, it depends who you talk to in that same yeah. way. Like there's people who I'm the Olympic guy. There's people on the gymnastics guy. There's people on the CrossFit guy. There's people on the get out of pain guy. It kind of depends when they ran into me. And you're becoming the most valuable guy in the room because you're you're what, what Kelly Sturek calls as a savage generalist, right? And that's what I strive to be is being not only a, a, a mile deep, but try to be a mile wide. And so after we kind of go around the room and pick out, you know, what is everybody's thing? So we pick one person and we just say, okay, your thing is kettlebells right? And so what we then do is kind of break down the walls of what that actually means. Because what we'll say is, all right, across the room, who does, who's not familiar with kettlebells and kettlebell training? And someone raise their hand and say, well, what do you think it is? Oh, well, it's, you know, it's weird cult where people have, you know, they take their shoes off and they have Patagonia's on and they only do four exercises. And, and like, they have this whole image of what this kettlebell thing is. And you say, okay, well, is that really what it is? And they say, no, it's actually not that at all. And then to take it a step further, we do a Socratic debate where we break up the room into two two teams and then whoever was the kettlebell guy or kettlebell girl we make them go on team anti-kettlebell 
right? And then the other group has to be pro kettlebell. And in five minutes, you come back and we have a debate of whether kettlebells are the greatest or maybe the worst thing ever. And what we end up finding out is to say, well, it's really not either. It depends, right? And that's going to be the answer we give quite a bit is it depends. And, and, you know, I had a post that I said my three favorite answers after doing this for 20 plus years is one, number one is I don't know. Number two is it depends. And number three is maybe, maybe not. Right. So that that kind of sums up the, the the philosophy from the top end down. And then we can certainly keep going down to the nitty gritty from there. But we first have to ask like who are we working with? Because the same application is not the same for the high school team that I just saw, even for the individual high school athlete that I may see tomorrow. Because you can't make the same decisions when I have a room full of 45 kids versus one individual. Right. So that decision is going to change. It depends also on where, like, where are they coming from? Because that same person that you kind of talked about all the different labels that you had, they may be in different buckets, depending on where they are, depending on their life. Like that same athlete may need to get out of pain right now. And so you have to wear that hat today with that person. And then that athlete, maybe I need to get in shape because camp starts in two weeks and you're the conditioning guy. And then you may be on the Olympic lifting power strength guy because it's January and I have eight months until the season and I just need to really build a, a base and work on that end of the continuum. The more we just are that one thing, the more we're really not just hamstring ourselves, we're hamstring the results we can get with clients. I completely agree. I couldn't agree more. Like the right tool in the right hands for the right situation is exactly the right thing and how you're connecting it to that individual. Because even like you, like two ex- the same two people on the same baseball team, but one with a very different injury history than the other, are you're going to need completely different things to get the same result. Yeah, and then the and then what makes it even more confusing that compounds the argument is that you could use five tools and they all are right, right? They all could work. You could use one person could go down the route of doing nothing but kettlebells and functional training. One person go down the right the the road of more. West side strength based, you know, type of, of work. And one person can go down the route of more speed and, 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 and sprint type training and, and they all could end up with great results. So that's why you can't argue, you know, which is best because there, there's multiple things that'll work in the same situation, you know, and so it really gets hard to kind of pin down. It's really best on what you're equipped to teach and coach and what they're ready to absorb and the environment that they're in. Right. You know, like I have one team in particular asked this, I had this conversation with the, the football coach last week and they said, why don't we an Olympic lift? And I said, OK, let's look around the weight room. We have about, you know, a thousand square feet. Right. If bars start flying around, I said, it's just asking for somebody to get knocked out cold, not to mention the fact that you have 40 kids that I have to service at once to be ability to, to to coach that well enough to have that be safe and have that actually produce the result we want is just not there for this situation. Now, if I'm in Alabama and I got 10 platforms and I have a lot more time for teaching and three assistants, then that's a whole different story. That doesn't take away from or add to the benefit of Olympic lifting. That's just the reality of the scenario, right? So in our course, we kind of break down 10 elements of program design and then we break those elements into clusters, right? So the first three things are number one, first and foremost, is goal. Like, who are you and what are you trying to accomplish? If you ask me if Pilates is good, if if strongman training is good, if it depends on what you want to accomplish, right? That's number one is the goal. 
And then even the, within that, the next thing you have is time, because that's usually one of the biggest barriers for, for success is time. I know if you're working with teams and athletes, everybody's vying for that athlete's time. Or if it's just an individual who's working nine to five and has has things going on, they don't have a whole lot of time to train. So time and then within that time, I break it down into how much time can you actually dedicate to training? Because the greatest four day a week split, if you only have three days, doesn't matter. And then time, like how much time do you actually have to achieve this goal? Because that's going to determine some stuff. Because if you say I have to be ready for this tryout on this date, there's there's less margin for error than the person that says, you know what, I just like to lose 10 pounds, the sooner the better. So that's going to factor into there. And then the, the next element that we look at is your history and kind of what walked in the door, like your, you know, how well do you move? What's your injury history? What's your medical history? What's your training history? All that stuff. Now, if you take all those three and cluster them together, that's determined by the organism, right? Whether it's an individual or a group or a team, that's, and you don't get to pick that. You don't get to change any of those things. You don't get to pick their history. You don't get to pick their, their goal. You don't get to pick their times. You just pretty much have to work with that organism that works in. And then that's why that's up top. Right. So that's why the who gets broken down even further. And then we can dial that back into, all right, how do we assess that? How do we look at those things and how do we determine where you are at this current moment? And then you go into the stuff that we're going to look into. What's the environment that they need to go into? And that's where we're going to choose which movements we're going to pick, you know, because we could pick 17,000 different versions of a squat. But we just know we want some version of a squat in there some way, somehow. Right. As we're checking that big list that everybody knows about. We want to squat. We want to bend, push, pull and that sort of thing. And then from there, that that's kind of the environment also in that where are they training? Like I said, are they training where I'm training a team? Are they training if you're training in a big box gym? Because that's going to go and lead into your format. You try doing circuit training at LA Fitness on a Monday at six o'clock at night. Good luck, right? You can't even turn around to get a drink and someone's stealing your bench. That's going to determine those things. So those are all environmentally driven things. And sometimes that you don't always get to choose, right? And then the last piece, that's really determined by nature. That's the science. That's the that's the stuff that everybody's arguing about. The reps, the sets, the tempo, the rest periods, all those things. That's just pretty much we know what, for the most part, what parameters work. If I want to build strength versus I want to build endurance versus I want to build speed or power and wrap everything around that and everything relates to the next. If you're going to do high number of reps, you're going to have a lower rest period. You're going to have a, you know, different tempos. If you're looking for explosiveness, if you're looking for, for control or stability. So all that stuff is kind of predetermined by sports science. And so if you kind of look at in those buckets, you know, what we often do is we get way down the rabbit hole of the, the nature part, which we don't get to pick a whole lot. We just, it's the art is how do we apply that? And really the art is how do I get this individual or group to number one, how do I build rapport with them and get buy-in? Because the greatest program in the world, if they don't like you, it doesn't matter, right? How many times yeah. we talk about there's trainers and coaches that have all the letters, they have alphabet suits after their name, but nobody likes them. Like nobody's yeah. listening to them. And then yet there's ones that we kind of giggle at, at, you know, at the gym or, or, or you see them, you're like, how do they get there? It's because they have an unbelievable ability to get people to run through a wall for them, no matter what they, they say or do. So being able to, the art of building that rapport and trust and then being able to cater it to that the organism and the environment, that's really the art of, of, of coaching and, and putting together a program. I love it. We talk about building trust on purpose to other coaches. Like it shouldn't be an accident. It's something you have to go out and make it your job because if they don't believe you, if they don't really think you know that it's going to work, it doesn't matter how good it is on paper. And that 
just another point you said that the art is in the implementation. That's where the magic is, which is why I believe so strongly in doing this and talking about exactly how to do this. Because this isn't, there is no magic here. You can, it's in a million books. You, I will tell you how to build your perfect program. And you still won't be able to do it because implementing it in exactly the right way is where all the magic is. And that's why you need an eye on you. And well, to, to your first point, I love Coach Mike Boyle's line of, of uh, he likes to hire certified nice people. Mike, <laughs> that's the first certification yep. you should have is, is that. And then then there's the the other part. And we I do a whole section on this in my course is the fact that let's even say if you did come up with that perfect formula. All right. And we've got it all nailed down. And I've had that where, you, you know, and I'm sure you've had it many a Monday morning. You got the program you think is going to just set the world on fire. And then that, cl- that client walks in limping because they rolled their ankle skiing this weekend, right? Or their, you know, eyes, you know, half shut because they got terrible sleep because they have an, a newborn at home or they're, they say, oh, I went out last night and I had too many drinks. So that high intensity day you just had planned just got crumpled up and thrown out the window. So now you have to be able to adapt to someone's current state of readiness. And how do I, how do I taper that? So that makes it a whole nother level of an art form. And you have to know how to recognize those things. If not, you're just plowing ahead with your, you know, macro cycle that you had planned out for the next three months. Well, meanwhile, you have a live living organism that has a life outside of you. And so that's something you have to adapt to as well. And that can make that will let you make huge progress as well as building a ton of credibility with somebody. If they walk in the room and you already start picking up on that energy and how they're carrying themselves and ask what happened and how'd you sleep last night and be ready to make those changes. Even if you programmed for eight hours on a Sunday and you really worked out the next three or four months, like, Letting yourself make that adjustment and meeting them where they are will actually get you results as well as keep them so bought in with what you want them to do that when that next high intensity day comes around and you need to put them through a wall, they're ready for it. Yeah, 100%. And Mike has a great line in our course and he says, you know, of all the pro athletes we've worked with, no one ever won a world championship and said it was this one workout I did back in 2017 that was really the thing that got me to where I am today. It's this cumulative process. And so this cumulative process that ebbs and flows, and it's really just understanding the art of stress and adaptation and understanding that stress is not just what we're doing to them. It's getting to them from in the environment. It's mental stress. It's physiological stress. It's what they're putting in their bodies. It's what they're putting in their eyes and ears. It's all these things that are influencing them and understanding how to kind of play that, play those notes each day is really what the, what the art of this is. And so that's easier said than done. And it's easier when depending on what, you know, again, who's in front of you, it depends on, are you have an individual? Do you have a small group? Are you working with a class? Are you working with a team? You know, so then the, what happens is it gets kind of filtered down and your decisions change somewhat. And so, you know, in the course I talk about, there's, there's three primary drivers for my decisions. There's one is access. How much access do I have to, right? So, 2020, the world shuts down. What does everybody in our profession do? They immediately get online and we're doing online training. Well, that that brings you down a tier of, of access, right? You don't have the ability to be hands-on and say, this is where your scapula should sit. You don't have the ability to teach them different things and be, so that takes down a level of access. So that's going to change some decision-making, right? I'm not going to coach things or maybe implement some things that I might have otherwise if you were standing here in front of me. Access like I'm a consultant for high school teams. If I'm not there in the weight room with them three days a week and I'm leaving this workout to be overseen by the defensive line coach, right, or the assistant coach, 
I don't trust them with as much complex lifts as if I was standing there. So that's going to change, change some information or change some decisions. The next thing I should say is information. How much information do I have on you? Now I'm going to write a different program based on if I have a full evaluation with you and I've been able to have an introductory consultation and do all that stuff versus I've never met you before and you're one of 20 kids on a team that's just been thrown in front of me to say do a workout. So that's going to change my decision making as well. So how much information do I have about you? And then last but certainly not least is safety. Like I said before, in that small little weight room, safety is a significant issue if I'm going to do start swinging bars around. Safety is where, you know, I might not want to be doing jumping in the middle of an LA fitness and jumping onto a bench when there's people with headphones on taking selfies, not paying attention, walking by. So those are decision-making factors that it doesn't take away, like I said, from the value of what you're looking to do. It's not that, hey, the jumps are bad. It's just jumps are not smart right now based on the environment that you're in. Yeah, 100%. And people often, I feel like, especially athletes, see that stuff as a compromise or a trade-off. Like, oh, I can't do this or I can't do this. And they get this long list of what they can't do. And it takes a lot of rapport, as you said, to convince them that the program you're about to give them will accomplish exactly the same thing. We can build explosiveness. We can build speed. We can change direction. We can do all of this a bunch of different ways. Just because you don't have 100 meters of turf and a sled doesn't mean I can't make your legs strong. Yeah, there's been athletes who have reached the highest levels of what you want to do without any of that stuff, right? And so I'm trying to mimic what elements they did have. And so we're always looking at to say, how do I build the most resilient, re reliable performer based on what what we know already? And then and some of it a lot on, quite frankly, just what we don't know, right? That's And that's one of the other things that you know, I am certainly not that the more I learn, the more I realize that we're just scratching the surface. We just don't know. We just don't know a lot of stuff, you know, and, and how much stuff that I learned back in exercise science classes and in, in the, you know, late 90s that were gospel then has changed, right? About the magic window for your protein intake after after your workout, right? And that it's, you know, you wasted your time and you're it's all going to poof and go away if you don't get a protein shake in your body half hour after your workout. Or that you had this small little window of reps that you built muscle in and now it's kind of like anywhere from five to like 30, you know, you can do it. So like those things have evolved. And so there's so much that we don't know that it's really hard to stand, you know, up on the soapbox and say this is an absolute except for some general principles that we know. Right. And that there's some things that I don't understand that people argue about in our field that just seem to make a whole lot of sense just from a principle standpoint. But I don't know where the argument comes from. I can argue over a bunch of stuff, but like there's a there's actually ironically, there's a segment that I talk about the cost of training. Right. And there's all these different costs of things that we do because everything has a cost. Right. If you know us talking together right now is time that we're not spending doing something else. Right. But sometimes that's not a bad cost. It's a worthwhile cost. We're getting huge value out of this. So with training, there's a bunch of different costs and whether it's a physiological cost that, you know, you're taxing your body and that we have to understand and appreciate that, that I probably don't want to do that the day before a competition, right? Because there's going to be a cost involved. And, but I do want to do that certain days because if I don't ever spend that, I'll never build fitness. So it's a matter of when do I use that budget of, of my energies. And so in all the costs that I have listed, I have something called structural costs, right? And structural costs is just there's an amount of stress that something could cause when you're when you're doing an exercise and you have to, it's just a risk reward 
type of decision. And then, so I don't know if you, how much you followed the, the Twitter war that went on with speaking of coach Boyle, but Mike Boyle put up something talking about orthopedic costs, which is essentially the same thing I was talking about with structural costs, because it just kind of makes sense of saying that certain exercises, it's may not worth the orthopedic yeah. cost that it's going to do on your joints. And this created such an incredible debate and it's, st- and I still don't quite understand it. And I would love somebody to try to enlighten me because I wish I knew what I was missing, that it just kind of makes sense that certain things are going, if, if exercise is stress, it's not always good stress. You can't say it's always good stress just because it's exercise, right? People are going to the emergency room from the gym, right? There's people who have gotten significantly hurt exercising. So you can't say that all exercise is, is positive. Obviously, that doesn't, we want to scare people away from exercise and in, 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 in that regard. But there's there's got to be a decision-making process in terms of a risk-reward, right? And saying that, you know what, that's a great exercise. It's just not a great exercise for you. You can't even touch your toes. So I don't know if you ripping a deadlift off the floor is the best thing for you right now, right? So that's not saying deadlifts are bad. It's just, and not saying that you need to be Gumby and you need to be a 21 on a movement screen. It just means like, that's a kind of simple reasoning to say, like, I can't even coach you really well on how to get into a good deadlift position because you can't even touch your toes. Like, give me something to work with. I like that that cost of training a lot. And I think a lot of that comes back to it depends. I count myself lucky I missed this particular Twitter war. But it sounds like a bunch of people who have built, you know, relatively small camps for themselves defending it mightily because if what you do is coach people to one rep max back squats and someone says, you know, one rep max back squats, actually, they aren't you don't get a lot out of them. It's a fine test, I guess. But you can go through your whole life and get very, very strong without ever doing that. Then they feel attacked rather than saying, well, I can teach you how to do an amazing back squat. And this person, you know, setting an eight rep max is going to be really useful for this person. And they never need to actually put, you know, I'm never going to put 450 pounds on my back again. I'm not like it, it. I know what it costs. It's just too hard. I feel it for days. It is absolutely not worth it. I'm very happy to play in five, eight, 10 rep maxes. And is it going to be exact? No. What you extrapolate from there and the further you get away from one, the, 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 cause I actually use Jim Wendler's five, three, one system a ton with my high school teams. And the reason sure. why I use it is not in the spirit that I'm sure that Jim wrote it in. Here's why I use it. Because I want to put up guardrails for a bunch of testosterone-filled kids who all they want to do is one rep max every single time. And they don't understand that's not how you get stronger. It just doesn't work that way. And so by having a guesstimate, you know, based on their three or five RM, I can plug in a theoretical max. And then from there, I can spreadsheet out, here's what I want you doing today. And so when you walk in the door, you don't get to guess your weights. Because when I let you guess, you just, you either do the same weight all season, or you you try to one rep max every time. So now here, I'm going to give you the guidelines to say, these are your weights. This is your first warm-up. This is your second warm-up. This is your first set. This is your second set. This is your third set. And when you get in those first four sets are going to be really kind of easier than you expect. But that last set, you can go all out, get as many reps as you can. And there's where you get to pump out your testosterone all you want. Because you're going to peter out at some point. But I know there's a huge safety factor that I just saved you from the physiological costs, the structural costs, all the stuff that would go with having to one RM you. And I'm still getting ridiculous strength results because that's the beauty and elegance of Jim's system. So that's how I, that's the reason why I use it, not in the true spirit of I'm building power lifters. I use it as guardrails to keep dumb high school kids from killing themselves. 
I love that though because it still it lets them progress and they can see where they're going and they see that they're getting stronger and they watch it go up and up and up. But it's also no, no, no. You are doing exactly these reps at exactly this weight, and I'm gonna walk by and look at the bar, and that better be what the weight is on the bar. Exactly, and it and it makes it it makes it plug and play, and then I don't have to worry about them making decisions because the the nature of 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 teenagers is they make bad decisions that's what they do all day and just like anyone anyone with a low training history right they don't know what they don't know they don't have nearly the experience to understand what it's like to actually feel when something's near failure or when they're you know a a technically incompetent rep is going on or things like that it would be unfair to ask them to judge that kind of thing yeah, and I try to keep it simple. The first discussion I have in, at the onset of any training program within any individual or group is for this to work, you need to be two things. You need to be challenged. You're going to need to get to the point where maybe it gets a little uncomfortable, where you feel some muscles burning and you're going to and it's going to be you're going to have to grind a little bit because that's the whole way it works. You challenge yourself. Your body goes, oh, my gosh, if you're going to keep doing that, I have to get better at doing that because every cell in your body has one job and that's survive another day. But you also have to be successful. Meaning that if we go and put, if you can bench press 200 pounds and we put 100 pounds on the bar, you'll be super successful. You just won't be really challenged. And then if we put 300 pounds on the bar, you'll be really challenged. You just will not be successful. So the art is finding that edge of your ability to say right where you're challenged and you're successful in the range that matches up based on those decisions we said before, based on nature of what's going to get you to your goal. Because you, so you can do, that's the other misconception, right? Is we make our, our programming decisions primarily on exercises when it's quite frankly maybe one of the least important factors it's important if you can't do them it's important if you can't touch your toes and you program a deadlift it's important if you can't squat properly and you program squats it's way more important then but once you you have a movement competency that you can you can do all the movements which one you pick isn't nearly as important as the 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 all the parameters around it because i could do i could squat a heavy, like you said, a heavy one to three, get one result. I can squat six to 10, get a different result. I can squat 20, 30 reps, get another result. And then I can do bodyweight squats for a hundred and get another result. They're all squats. So squats don't make you big. They don't make you strong. They don't make you give you endurance. They don't give you speed. Squats are squats until you know who, what, when, where, and why. Yeah, exactly. What you're after determines how that will look. And then you can implement it almost any way. Yeah, and you can you could take the same rep range and then you can manipulate all the other variables. You can manipulate there's a big difference in doing a five two five two tempo of really grinding and nice and slow versus a four one 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 tempo where you grind it down and then explode up versus a one 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 where you may have bands or, or chains on there and you're there's a and it's much more dynamic. So it's really kind of all those other factors come into play that we don't even think about. And then, you know, the, the, the other factor that I think, you know, when you look at your typical training or session chart, we've seen all the, all right, here's the movement or exercise, here's the reps, here's the sets, here's the tempo. But the, the one thing that I think that we miss the boat on that, that I think more people should have is your breathing and how you're going to breathe on a mobility drill is different than how you're going to breathe on a speed drill versus how you're going to breathe on a strength drill versus how you're going to breathe in a recovery drill. So almost having a section to say this is the style of breathing we want here is is just as impactful because you can change things. I mean, as somebody who knows, you know, between power Olympic, powerlifting and Olympic lifting, completely different breathing, right? And completely different breathing than on the make you kind of feel and move better breathing 
is completely different from those two. So like I have a wheel of breathing and I show about seven different techniques of breathing that are all really good. So when someone says, how should I breathe? Well, what are you trying to do? Yeah. What are we at? I just had someone, yeah. I had two people today. I had a, a postpartum mom and someone who is, oh, about five months post back surgery. And one of them is working on a ton of core stability. So we're doing a lot of like very particular bracing. And the other one is working on a lot of breath desensitization, just moving without pain. Can I like go get this thing that's on a box and not squeal? And exactly, they they breathing literally in opposite ways with almost the exact same movements. Yeah. And so even when we talk about core stabilization, right? So we can go down rabbit holes with that and say, even within core stabilization, so we argue about the, you know, we you pull up, everybody likes to pull up their, their little infographic of this is the best core exercise that created the greatest EMG activity, right? Well, what are you trying to accomplish? Because that actually may be horrible if you created a ton amount of EMG activity, if you get somebody who's over bracing when they shouldn't. Like the last thing I want is when someone's sprinting down a field that they're creating over bracing, right? They're going to run like a, like a robot. All right. When you talk about core stabilization, there's two sides of the spectrum. There's the one side, which is more intrinsic, low level, low threshold type of stabilization. I'm going to cut, go, move that type of thing. How and, you know, kind of talk about self-organization and quick, you know, how quickly you can access thing. And then there's the other side of I'm going to lift this really friggin heavy thing off the floor. I need to create this corset that's going to protect everything from my shoulders down to my hips and and create a stable platform to to create force off of well that's going to that's going to be a completely different breathing approach and it's going to be a completely different core stabilization approach and so when you talk about what are we trying to build core stability the you know simple answers of oh stronger core like i have a client you know who's 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 had a history of back pain he's like oh well i've been doing all these core exercises not helping my back i said well who's to say that that's your problem Right. Just because you have strong abs doesn't necessarily you'll mean you'll have a, a, a healthy back. There's a lot more that goes into it than, than just that. If not, our lives would be a lot simpler. I just give everybody planks. Yeah. If you have amazing abs and a six pack, but your your hips just tilt forward all the time, you walk around with the sway back. We're still going to have all kinds of problems we need to fix. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are who are jacked with with chiseled abs who have incredible amounts of pain all over their body. I can tell you, I used to be one of them when I competed in bodybuilding. I never felt worse in my life. Now, that's not to say you have to be like that, but I was just too stupid to know any different. But it, one does, it just shows that one, it's, it, one doesn't equal the other. And that's one of those trade-offs, right? And I, I think it might be interesting for people to talk about that because that's certainly like a trade-off of being like incredibly built and incredibly lean Often, like there's a lot of lifestyle trade-offs certainly that go with that of being able to socialize and what you eat and what you do and how you sleep and how you train and all that, but also like how you feel approaching show day. And I feel like, especially for people looking at like athletic events, athletic endeavors, teams, when they have a deadline, when like, no, like every Sunday matters. You need to, we're going to get there. We're going to play really hard. And there's some trade-offs associated with that that I don't think are always highlighted, especially with people who aren't getting paid to do this. Do you know what I mean? A thousand percent. You know, a great line, a very well-known NFL player told me is he said, I wake up every Monday and I hate football. I feel like I got hit by a truck. He says, by Tuesday, it's not as bad. By Wednesday, I don't mind football. And he said, Friday, I get paid and I friggin' love football. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this, there's yeah. this cycle that, that you kind of go through. And you, 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 and also you're looking at, I talk a lot about the, you can't, 
match up extremes and norms, meaning like even if we look at, let, let's go even more granular. If you look at shoulder range of motion, you know, I work a lot with baseball players. And if you look at external rotation, like the layback, if you lay your arm back into external rotation, like if you're at the top ready to release a pitch, like the amount of layback that a baseball pitcher has versus what the average individual needs is significantly different. Well, the baseball pitcher is an extreme. Right. If you look at the population of the world and how many need to throw a baseball at that level, it's a really small you know, segment of the population. So we shouldn't hold the norms to that extreme. But at the same time, I also can't just put somebody through the, a basic movement screen and say, well, you have enough to go be an MLB pitcher because now I'm trying to expect my my norm to be good enough for my extreme. Well, it doesn't work that way either. And so the more extreme you are in the edge of that, you know, of being an outlier type of situation, the less applicable what you need, you know, you know, applies to the general population. And so there are some things that everybody should be able to do. And that's where I kind of start with the big buckets that we, we kind of, you know, kind of check off. And then as you get downstream, then it's it gets more granular and it gets more towards the fringes of what you're looking for. Like I always say, there's three big things we have to we have to move. Right. And what that movement means is very different for each individual. But you got to at least move. We know that that the part of what makes us humans is, is just movement. And then from there, you also have to fuel. And that's what you put in your body. And that's the air you breathe. That's the food you eat. That's the that's the TV you watch, the people you hang around with. All that is the mental fuel that goes into your body. And then you have to be also be able to reset that this is a, you know, there's a reason that they they don't quite know physiologically. If you even listen to some of the experts like, you know, Dr. Matthew Walker, or some of the experts on sleep, they don't really know the physiological reason for sleep other than we need to have some level of reset within our body, right? And so the ability to reset yourself, you know, psychologically and emotionally, the ability to reset yourself physiologically, the ability to reset yourself is incredibly impactful. So then we have those three big things. And then from there you say, okay, well, what kind of movement? Well, movement can be broken into a bunch of different buckets. We have, you know, mobility and stability. We have strength, we have power, we have endurance. We have all those factors within there that, that fall into to movement. And then we take that and then we have to, you know, portion, portion off the, what is, what is movement versus exercise? And so if you've ever been familiar with any of the work of like Katie Bowman, who's brilliant, who talks about in her books, like move your DNA and so forth, talking about like all exercise is movement, but not all movement is exercise. Like exercise is basically a new phenomenon and it's because we don't move enough. But we, we have to take a certain portion of our day to make up for the movement we don't get in the rest of our day. Because if you went in, you know, a joke, if you, we had a time machine and you went back 10,000 years ago and you had to explain what we do for a living to somebody, they would, it would be very hard to do. Say, okay, well, we take these people and we bring them in a room and we make them move. You're like, what do you mean make them move? Well, the, you know, aren't they move all day? Why wouldn't you make them move? Well, no, they sit in desks and chairs all day. Well, what's a desk? What's a chair? Well, how do they make, you know, how do they, you know, feed themselves? How do they, you know, do any of these things? And it'd be a very hard conversation to have to explain that we have to take movement, which has been part of our culture for tens of thousands of years and we have to confine it into these little boxes and then you know subcategories so that's not and it's a purposeless we pick things up and put them down and we don't do anything with them like we we you know we stand outside an elevator to wait to go upstairs to go on a stair climber we drive around a parking lot to wait to go on a treadmill like it's a purposeless 
event, you know, endeavor. And, and it's really kind of silly if you could take a step back from all of it. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, even in, like if you look at how we argue about these staples of a squat and a deadlift have to be in your program, like who's to say that size round thing with a circle in the middle of it has to go on that long of a bar. That's that weight that that is the only way to accomplish what we want to accomplish. It's just, that's kind of the, the dogma that we fell into. So, you know, where movement's a much bigger bucket, like there's a big difference in learning how to move of like, I'm going to go feed myself. I'm going to go, you know, be able to do these things. And then can you at least do the movements that are, that nature is requiring of you? Can, can you walk up a hill? Can you climb? Can you get down onto the ground and get back up? All of the, can these, all these things are, are things that we just kind of neglect and we're assuming that we can until we can't. Yeah, so much of that gets overlooked so often. And I think a lot of it has to do with, I mean, a lot of it is sort of our fault in a way, like the fitness industries. We have put so much value on these things. And I have this conversation, especially with coaches who are coaching group classes on a regular basis. And, you know, and they have, maybe they came into CrossFit and now they're slightly, they want to do more, like they want to still coach in this gym, but they want to stop doing snatches for time. And they want to stop doing this other stuff. And like, But people love it. It's like, no, 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 man. They only love it because you told them it was important. Like you, you held this up as the way to get fit. They believed you. Now they think it's important. You have to explain why you don't feel that way anymore and show them what you do think is important. And the barbell is a fine tool, but there's lots of other stuff we can use. Yeah, and that, that's that's awesome. It's a great viewpoint in that, you know, we have a lot of arbitrary things that we've kind of made up that we, you know, when's the last time you saw a program that had four reps or seven reps right it's like these these numbers kind of got you know shaved off of the numerical system in, in meathead world and that everything's divisible by 45s and 25s and 10s and you know all of it you can get back you step back it's kind of silly and arbitrary if you try to explain this to a caveman and so we also don't we don't have a really good ability of kind of looking at what we're doing is in in the difference between health and fitness and that, that we've made them two different things and that's really kind of nuts like either the fact that we're actively making someone unhealthy to make them fit now for some people that actually is part of that's that that's a necessary part of their training right for bodybuilders it is a necessary part of your training that's come so completely un, unnatural that if you were the most ripped jacked caveman you were you were basically tiger meat within the next couple of weeks, right? Because you were never going to survive. But for that sport, you take, you do these periods, these short periods of intermittent, you know, unnatural endeavors because that's what your sport is. You know, it's it's unnatural for you to put on pads and run at, at, at 20 miles an hour and smash into another human being for three hours on a Sunday. But that's that's what you're preparing that athlete to do. And so we're not going to change that. We just have to understand that is an extreme and that is an outlier. And that is not what the average person needs that we don't need to portion out health and fitness separately. Cause it, you brought up a great point. We're in the, in the greater umbrella of health and fitness and rehab, we are failing miserably. And, and the, the best way to explain it, if you go back to my time machine, when I first opened my facility back in 2002, it was in a, relatively good size suburban you know upper middle class area in northern new jersey and it was myself was one really personal training center there was a, a gym that was a family-owned traditional you know 30 dollars a month going to workout gym and then there was one physical therapy group where i knew the physical therapist name there was one therapist and 
you know, he had an aide. And then there was one chiropractor they knew of in town. Fast forward 20 years late, drive through in, through that same town. There's probably five chiropractors. There's mega physical therapy clinics. There's recovery centers. There's, I don't know how many, you know, fitness centers and, you know, group trainings and boot camps and all those things. It's on every corner. And yet we're the, still the most unhealthy, broke, obese population in the world. So what we're doing is not working. We're not getting people to, to kind of to get a sustainable type of path that takes them to both health and fitness and, and kind of, you know, a health span that they can actually, you know, it's not six weeks to summer type of, you know, workout, but like a health span that you're going to be able to, to be resilient and functional in your 80s and 90s. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think a lot of it has to do, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this, especially the past year or two, is that fitness is not helping you and I, and there's a bunch of smart people. You know a bunch of smart people. I know a bunch of smart people. There's some really good people in fitness who do this for a living, and I've done it for a while. And very often, we are not helping the people who we could help most. There are people who don't feel even welcome walking in a gym for a variety of reasons. They're too hurt, or they don't like the way they look, or they don't know anything about it, or they don't understand and these are the people who are having massive health problems and significant pain and they don't know how to move. And you, could, we could change their lives and we spend most of our time making pretty fit people a little more fit. And I'm not against that. Like there's like there's that should also exist. But I think in general, like fitness can take a big step forward into helping the world and the country and the organization and stand side by side with physical therapists and medical doctors and orthopedists and all these other people in helping the population in general. Huge, huge, huge point that you have there. You know, that's it. part of that, I think, is because we're arguing on Twitter. There was a, an argument of whether walking counts as exercise. Did you get that one? Yes. That was, and there was the argument of like, are you kidding me? Like, so we have, you know, people, a, a health epidemic and you're going to scare people away. You say, well, no, your walks don't count because it doesn't register high enough on your heart rate monitor. That's insane. That's absolute insanity. And then so people look at us like these dumb meatheads. I'm not going to them. They have no idea what they're talking about. So that's a huge problem. And then the fact that we haven't embraced, you know, where at the so where we can we kind of cut it off more upstream. Right. And if you ever read the book, the Ups, Upstream by Chip Heath, I think it was is the author and kind of getting it at, at, at the, ahead, ahead of things. And I, one of the places I think that we can absolutely transform this is in P.E., and I've done some some projects with with physical education and really kind of researched the history of PE in the U.S. And there's a great book called JFK Secret Doctor talking about the, the Krauss-Weber tests and Hans Krauss and, and what he tried to do and try to implementing movement and the history of where kind of the presidential physical fitness test yeah. came into play. And, and really, that was not so much of a altruistic thing of, hey, we want to buy a bunch of fit kids. It was people like Krauss, you, you know, going to uh, politicians saying, look, your kids are really you know, not fit. And if you don't start doing something about it, you're gonna have no soldiers to fight, you know, in a couple of years. And sure enough, fast forward to now, I just posted a study that came out that showed, I think about a, only about a quarter of age eligible Americans that can, that could enlist actually would be able to pass the physical requirements necessary. And so it, that was a premonition that was made 50, 60 years ago. And so part of the problem is, is when they, they tried to do this, this, this changing of our PE programs is that they brought in people like Bud Grant, who's a football coach. And it's not a knock on him. He brought in what he knew, but it, it became where PE was sports. And now 
you blend that, you have a perfect storm of that, along with the privatization of, of youth sports and what the, a complete disaster mess that's become. And now what you have is you have a gym class of where the athletes go and play sports and they kind of do a half effort because you know why? Because they're going to a private instructor later and they're on two different teams and they play four different sports and they're, they're doing all that. And then you have the other kids who are completely ostracized from that, that are intimidated by it and they want nothing to do with it because it's, they're not the jock. And so when we went and implemented like just simple movement programs, looking at balance and looking at, you know, their ability to move and, you know, do simple body control things, it was a great equalizer. And when you saw the, the stud athlete, you know, not being able to balance on a single leg and the kid from who's in the band who gets picked on all day is kicking this kid's rear end in the same drill. It not only is a great equalizer from a, the, the physical active part of what they were doing, but it was maybe I see this kid in a different light now. Maybe I'm not going to pick on this kid so much. Maybe this kid actually I might want to pick him on my kickball team because he's actually kind of athletic. I just never saw it because I, I just ignored him because he's not on a he's not on a club or travel team, right? So what that can change in terms of the dynamics. And now because the that that other kid who is non-athletic now feels some success. And they feel some success and say, hey, I wouldn't, I might actually want to walk home. I might actually want to go and do some activity. I'm not going to go sign up for 17 sports and private instructors, but I may go play, you know, basketball at the, at the, you know, corner lot with my friends, right? So if that sparks a little bit of something and that pushes that snowball, snowball down that other hill, that's life-changing. And I think so much of this could be done at the PE level. I mean, there are some really good teachers that are trying to do this, but it's, it's very tough to do based on the confines that they're working within. Yeah, it's really, really hard. I've talked to parents who are trying to get more PE implemented in their schools, and I just hear these terrible stories of months and months and months of meetings, and then nothing happens. And like, oh, yeah, we have the money and we have the space and we have the teacher, but it's going to be hard. And how? Yeah. And then nothing happens and kids sit in a chair for four hours without a break. And the scary part is we're at that precipice where like when the the next budget cut, it's probably going to be either the music teacher or the gym teacher. Right. Two of the things that are so essential to development and just, you know, overall kind of kind of maturity of, of, a, of a young you know brain and body. And whereas if if done right, those could be two of the most valuable rooms in the building like P like there's some great work by like John Rady out and what he's done out in the Midwest with with P.E. and showing that by having a really well designed P.E. program, you can make everything in the in the building better, like from attendance to, you know, kids not acting up in class to having more focus to grades, like all those things that could be that could change. But you, it's not going to be immediate one-to-one thing. It's not going to be a thing like, hey, we did this program for six weeks and test scores went up. This is something that needs to be a cultural shift that is not easy to do. And you need to have passionate you know, teachers and, and you need to have receptive administration on board to get that done and to get parents bought in as well. Because listen, if, if the kid is, is in PE class 45 minutes and loves it and then goes home and their parents are ordering dinner out a window and sitting on the couch and watching movies and playing video games all day, it's it, that's an uphill battle. So it's it's really a, this is the, the way we can kind of change this. It could be kind of the healthcare of the future of, of getting at 
kids before they're diabetic, getting at kids before they've given up on movement, before they show up, you know, to you with the bad back when they're 25 or 35 years old. Yeah, I completely agree. And having that having that moment when they're young and letting it be play, letting it just be a thing you do for fun, like before it gets completely codified or becomes a chore they have to do can be life changing and infect everything else they do. And like you said, like the ROI isn't going to be immediate. It's not insert stimulus. You get this thing that semester, then you can definitely justify your budget. It's going to be over years and it's going to be anecdotal at first, but people will notice it as kids get quieter and there's more control and the creativity starts to blossom and everything else starts to to happen across that ecosystem that is a group of children. Now, the the one initial pushback that if you frame it differently could be a really powerful sell is the reality of a lot of the people who go into PE in the US are coaches. They're sport coaches and that's mm-hmm. a way, hey, I can be I can have this as my full-time job so I can coach after school and I can have the team I want and I have access to my players and so forth. Well, if you did this as part of your PE, your athletes are are significantly more resilient and more robust and more well-rounded. And so if we can get them on board and understand that, because if you look at like the long-term athletic development processes in places in in Europe, like Norway, where they do things totally different, they are the anti, you know, club team, you know, nationally ranked, you know, U8 teams like that we have here, they have a completely different model. And when it when it gets to the top end, it starts to level out. And for, you know, when you ratio out the size, they're very competitive with 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 cultures that are in countries that are much bigger than them. But they have a very different model of how we develop more healthy, well-rounded athletes. And so that's a that's a whole nother big project. But when we talk about like what we can get involved and talking about kind of changing the world, that that's that's getting them upstream. That's, you know, getting them before they're broken and before the us and before they have all these preconceived notions of what fitness and what movement and what health is. And before they've locked into being a single sport athlete for 11 out of 12 months, 11 out of 12 months, or I'm searching for my, my fitness information on Instagram. Oh yeah, exactly. Which is the other, also a black hole of where there's nothing good as someone who spends a lot of time on Instagram. eh, There's, there's nothing good. I apologize well, the, for being there. The, the way I try to kind of position that is, you know, I'm sure you've gotten the, the person that walks into you and they say that, you know, can we do this workout that The Rock did this weekend? And I explained to him, say, all right, that's I got no problem with that. And I said, just do me a favor. I said, you have a financial uh, planner? And they say, yeah. I said, well, dump him. I want you to go to The Rock's financial planner and I, and say, I want you to you. I want to have the exact same financial plan as The Rock. And they'll be like, well, he's a movie star. You're not. He has billions of dollars. You don't. And say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's the same thing physically. Do you understand that The Rock was a Division One athlete on one of the best football teams in the world, University of Miami? Like, you're not that. You you didn't pick the wrong parents if you wanted to follow that, right? So he's a freak. You're not. If you weren't, ha- if you were a freak, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It'd be you on Instagram. So if you think you can follow his workout, you should probably follow his financial plan too, because that's just as unrealistic. Yeah. And it comes back to what we started with, like understanding the who and understanding yourself is an enormous part of that, like actually being honest of where we're starting so you can know how to get where you want to go, wherever that may be. Yeah. Yeah. And by having a a kind of systematic checks and balances, and I'm very big on just checklists, it's it takes the the buy my bias out of it. 
because we have to, I'm always fighting to keep my own bias out of it and say, look, it's not that I want you to do one thing or the other. It's just, it's just what the system kind of spinning back at me of where you are right now. It doesn't mean you'll be here forever. It just means this is the, the place that, that we're meeting right now. And so having that checklist takes away that, that bias and say, look, I, you know, right now you shouldn't be pressing anything overhead based on the way your shoulders move. Doesn't mean you'll never do it. Doesn't mean it's bad. It just means until you can show me this, we can't do that. All right. And then once you can show me you've reached this minimum, then we can start to introduce that. And then that way it's not, it's not on me. It's really on you when you get there. And if you don't want to do these home, you know, mobility drills or exercise, that's fine. You just won't progress beyond that. And so understand that. And that puts the the ownership kind of on the individual to say, you're, you're really driving this. I'm not the, I'm not even the farmer here. You're planting the seeds. I'm just telling you where to plant them, wh- why to plant them and, and when to plant them. It's ultimately you who's going to do it. And those seeds are planting. You provide the soil as well. And that soil is what you do the other 23 hours a day and your, your nutrition and your sleep and your lifestyle. And so you're providing this end crop is going to be you and that you know you don't plant it and, it and it pops out as a fruit the next day you gotta you gotta give this some time and so the the more the faster you want to have it the more diligent you have to be on your farming and so that really is it's where you have the ownership like i said i will guide you through the process but i just as much as i'm not going to take credit when you get your wins you know i'm not going to also you know, take the blame for the loss or, or I'm going to yell at you for the loss because we kind of know what it is. And and that's going to happen. There's going to be times where, you know what, I, I had pizza last night or I had whatever. It's all right. It's because like we said earlier, not one workout or not one meal or not one day is going to make the impact of you being a world champion or not. Yeah. But that consistency over time, like the consistency paired with your commitment will definitely lead to results. And if you don't have either of them, then it just won't. And if that's not a priority, it's fine. But don't yell at me about it. Yeah. And that priority is going to change from time to time. And that's OK. And certain, certain things need to certain at times will take precedent. And you just have to be OK with that. You have to be OK with the fact that this is my three month window is the busiest time at work. And so I'm just not going to be able to be as fit as I am the other nine months. That's OK. We can get it back just as much as, before, as you got it before. But understand that that's a priority. Unless you're going to quit your job. This is the, the nature of things. We have to dial it back for the next couple of months. And pairing that with understanding that, as you said before, that cost of training, like understand, like, what do you have in your bank account? What can I spend? How exactly am I going to spend that today, this week, this month, this season of my life? Exactly. And it's your actions. What happens that every day is what builds that account. Right. And so you get six, six good nights of sleep the other nights. It's going to make you more resilient. It's going to make you more robust. So that one bad night won't kill you. And that's really what a truly healthy, robust organism is, is one that can handle stressors well, that can go outside on a hot, humid day like it is today in the Northeast. And they're, you know, they're not the ones that complaining with their tongue hanging out of their mouth. Like I can deal with it, right? Because I'm, I've conditioned myself where I can handle heat. And just the same thing with it's, you know, there's a lot of people that can't handle anything, but air conditioned 72 degrees with carpet and shoes on and they and they're they become very much house cats and so if you if you just stay that way and and you're you know you're going to get eaten up by the alley cats as soon as you walk out the door and so the to, to you have to have the ability to handle intermittent challenge and understand how when when you know when where and how how, how to do that yeah not you don't have to be the rock but you do have to try and be not fragile because being fragile is inherently a dangerous situation. 
Yeah, and I say we're at an interesting crossroads now because in the course, they say we're, we're at the intersection of, tra- uh, of fragile and broken. On one end of the continuum, we have people that are insanely fragile because they just don't move. They've wrapped themselves in bubble wrap, and then you add a pandemic to that where they don't get any movement at all in their lives. They eat nothing that, that drives their health. They have they stay indoors. There's nothing that gives them any level of intermittent challenge. And so because of that, they become so fragile that the slightest thing that's outside of, like I said, 72 degrees and carpeted is, is going to throw off their system. And then on the other side of things, what's the unique thing that's changed over the 20 plus years that I've been doing this is that, you know, when I started in the late 90s, there wasn't wasn't CrossFit. There wasn't obstacle course races as a billion dollar industry. There wasn't, you know, these extreme boot camps and, and 15, 60 year olds doing triathlons regularly. Like, so you didn't have these extreme type of activities. And so you have these people who are broken. And because they're they're challenging themselves in such an extreme way, but maybe not preparing themselves for that extreme activity in the right way. And so now both of these people come into you and they say, my back hurts, my shoulder hurts, my knee hurts, or whatever it is. You can't give them the same recipe, even though they both may have, and this goes back to the Twitter arguments, they both may have the same pathology, right? They both come in with knee tendonitis, but the fragile person needs a very different program than the broken person because they're there for very different reasons. And so understanding that is, is goes all the way back to the, the you question. Are you fragile or are you broken when it comes to that, that injured individual? I couldn't agree more. Eric, we could, I think it's obvious we could talk for another couple hours about this stuff. And this has been a real joy, but I want to be respectful of your time. I, tell people where to find you. And I definitely want you to plug this course and anything else you people should come figure Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Thank you. So easiest place to find me is just going directly to my website, which is just my name. It's Eric Degatti, E-R-I-C-D-A-G-A-T-I.com. And then what I do on, on there has not only, you can go under uh, under media and find all my socials and link to me there. There's a thing right on the homepage called Ask Eric. So if you have a question that, that pops up because we don't have live access to people on, on things like this, they can, if you have a question say, hey, I heard you talking about something about sleep or something about this, you know, could, where can I find out more about that? It just goes right to my email and I'll get back to you that way. And then you also have information about some of the projects I'm doing, including the Principles of Performance podcast, which goes along with the Principles of Program Design course that we have both a online and a live course. Our next course is going to be actually at Perform Better Headquarters in Rhode Island in September of 2022, September 24th. We do our live courses, which is eight hours. It's a whole lot of fun. Just kind of breaking down all the different stuff of program design and how to write better programs and Basically, anybody that uses exercise as their mode of improvement, whether it's a physical therapist, athletic trainer, personal trainer, coach, strength coach, you know, we're going to explain how to answer the questions you need to answer when you're kind of writing a program, kind of like we've been doing for the last hour or so. So that's Principles of Program Design, which you can find at principlesofprogramdesign.com. Perfect. I will also put all of that in the show notes so it's easy for people to find and click on. I strongly suggest checking all this out. We are obviously super aligned on pretty much everything And uh, I'm glad there's other people like you out in the world. Thank you. And I thank for having me, Justin. This has been awesome. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Feel Strong Fitness Podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Leave us a five-star rating if you have the time. That makes a big difference. DM us on Instagram at feelstrongfit. Any questions, if you just want to pick our brain. If you'd like more info, the website is feelstrong.me. We value effectiveness, individualization, and empathy. 
If you want to see what it's like to have an expert in the field really listen and hear what you need to build you the perfect program to get you where you want to go, today is the perfect time to get started. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you very much.